0: In old school games, life is cheap, don't be a dope, bring your pole, oil, and rope, and try not to go down in a heap. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Down in the Heap podcast. I'm your host Rob, podcasting to you live from my porch in beautiful northeast Minneapolis. I had a vacation, been away for a while, was really refreshing and relaxing up on the north shore of Lake Superior in Minnesota. It's a beautiful area, closest thing I guess you get to a ocean here in the middle of North America with uh, Lake Superior, I think uh, the second biggest freshwater source in the world. And it's got a beautiful rocky coastline, kind of smallish, rugged hills behind and Highway 61 hugging the coast, spectacular views along the way and little old lodges and Cabins nestled among the many rivers and falls, and it's pretty much covered with hardwood and especially um, evergreen forests, lots of birch too, and it's cool the The birch trees up there hadn't leafed out, so you see all these white trunks on the horizon, um, and it almost look ghostly in uh, different light and stuff and I guess that's one of the things I love about going up there is it kind of reacquaints me with terrain and just imagining different wilderness situations. As a city dweller I often forget about all the different um, obstacles and line of sight issues that you get when you get out into the woods and even though the deciduous Vegetation hadn't leafed out at all. It was still just covered with tree trunks and undergrowth and evergreen forests. So you couldn't really see that far, maybe 10 yards, unless there was some kind of clearing or creek or river. And so many of the rivers uh, have precipitous drops and cascades and rapids and fairly deep gorges and would be incredibly difficult to cross um, with just rudimentary equipment and, you know, maybe trying to fell trees and stuff. Um, It just kind of sparks my imagination and gets me thinking more about the mundane obstacles that a band of um, medieval technology... Adventurers would be going through exploring a wilderness situation and how susceptible things would be to ambush and stuff. Granted, I'm no um, (laughs) woodsman or uh, seasoned adventurer or anything like that, but even going up heavily groomed trails, it was often you'd lose sight of uh, the path only yards ahead of you or yards behind you, and you'd pause and see people walking up, and even though they had brightly colored rain slickers or coats and stuff, you didn't see them through the trees until they were often right on top of you. And you didn't hear them at all if you were if the trail was following along a river or something and the the sound of the water just drowned out any potential noise of someone's footfalls on a on a dirt path. But anyway, it's good to be back home, but uh I love going up there every year to get kind of away from everything and now I'm catching up on podcasts and having a hard time kinda of getting back into the idea of podcasting and coming up with topics. I feel like I have a gazillion topics that I'd like to talk about and just don't really know where to To start. So let's start with some calls that I had from the last episode. Got a couple from
1: Colin Green and Tim Shorts. Hey Rob, great episode. Really interested in hearing about the you know the characters that you you kind of avoid playing. It's in contrast to myself, I tend to pick out something I've never done before. So a couple of character concepts that I've brought to the table recently are Old ladies. I work with quite a few older women as a gardener. You know they can't do their own gardening, so I help them out. And I've met so many inspiring characters. I've I've used that that kind of um, experience to feed into the portrayal of these sort of inspiring matriarchs who may look frail or may look, um, it might get overlooked, but I bring them into focus and do my best to liven up the session. The other kind of character that I like to play is the, the guy from a distant land, maybe like a mysterious, mystical character. I might do a bit of a sort of strange accent doesn't quite speak the language fluently and you know maybe dark skinned or, or different from the the people of the country that he's currently in and I don't worry about the um this sort of real world racial issues cuz at the end of the day I, I'm inventing I'm inventing a race in my mind I'm being respectful and I just think it's adding you know literally adding color into the game and I find it fascinating to play try and dream up this other culture and then try and portray it so there There
0: you go that's Colin Green from Spike Pit and thanks Colin for the calls Uh, it's in regards a little bit to the last few episodes where I was talking about players playing different genders and different races and the Potential complications that are involved there. The idea of playing a, an older woman, I think, is a really interesting idea, um, and that that piques my interest a lot more than what I typically see other players run when they're when they choose to be a female character. I I had a lot of old like great aunts and stuff that were widows who were still on farms and things, and they were tough, rough customers, uh, very independent-minded, and I guess working in retail, too, you'd run into a lot of uh, older people that would be shopping during the day, and they'd often have time to sit and chat with you and had all kinds of interesting things to say and perspectives on life. and I think just playing an older... Person in general would be uh, are kind of interesting roles to play in the game, especially now that I'm <laughs> getting up there in age too. It's it's funny when when I don't know if everyone else has had the or many of you have had these experiences, but when I first started gaming when I was thirteen, fourteen years old, I didn't want to play any kid or something. I wanted to play someone who was in their twenties, someone someone cool. And then when I got to be 30s, 40s. I didn't want to play anyone that age. I wanted to play someone in their 20s again. And now that I'm 50 something, uh, I kind of like the idea of maybe playing a grizzled, world weary kind of person or something. And um, I don't know. Yeah, that's that's cool, Colin. I I like that. And I I I mean, I don't dislike it when necessarily when people play other genders uh, especially races I mean in fantasy everyone's playing different races and we'll get to that in a, a bit um, it's it's more that I I want people to to show it in the game if they're choosing to do that and and have some good idea or concept of why it matters not just that you I don't know are trying to um, shock the other gamers, or just be—I don't know. I I don't really. I just don't understand a lot of the times why people do it. So, what you're the what you're showing there, Colin, is I think a good example of a good reason to do it. It's an interesting reason to do it. Different. It's not uh, an attempt to uh, gain any kind of advantage in the game. And as far as the playing the fish out of water outsider character that's yeah that's a classic kind of role and i think someone like conan in fantasy literature is a perfect example of the fish out of water he's you know the rugged cimmerian who's now living in the soft lands of civilization and um, kind of taking advantage of those softies and a lot of times he seems confused a little bit by their behavior and attitudes and stuff, but uh, he's also very smart and adaptable and picks up on that. In TV, I think, Colin, you love uh, Robin of Sherwood, I know, and Nasir, the the Moorish character in that, is kind of the classic uh, example of the outsider, the double scimitar-wielding Moor who... Doesn't really say much, but his actions speak louder than words. And uh, I guess Morgan Freeman kind of did that in that Robin Hood um, with Kevin Costner. I think they, I wonder if they got kind of the ideas from the Robin of Sherwood TV series. But yeah, outsider characters, classic example of a interesting character choice. Thanks for the calls again. Hey Rob, Tim again. Uh, very good episode, and uh, uh, I, yeah, I understand what you're saying with that stuff. It's so tough because it depends on. I guess I was coming from the perspective of you know being an online game, but when you're doing it in public, yeah, you definitely want to have a better sense of what's around you, better decor and better, you know, b- more more behaved than you are online when you're at home and everything. So I can understand that. And, yeah, it's always a conflict when you're playing against yourself, like when you're role-playing with that. But I guess, you know, there's no perfect system, so you got to go with what you want to go with and kind of switch it up as it needs to go. But very good episode, Rob. I thought you did a great job explaining everything. So, well done. And there we heard from Tim Shorts at Gothridge Manor. And I had a little birthday present from Tim. Not on purpose, but I'm a, uh, I support him on Patreon, and I had the mail stop while I was on vacation. And when I came back a couple days later, the mail came, and I had a uh, one of Tim's little micro adventures, the Deben Baboon of Porter's Crown, so and an NPC card. So it's fun to see that stuff. I was like getting. Tim stuff in the mail. It uh, always makes my day a little better, and yeah, the I've never really talked. Oh, well, maybe, maybe I have, but I don't remember saying this. I only game face to face. I've never played online. I tried playing once on Discord, a uh, game of Top Secret with Adam and Chris, uh, and it worked out all right, um, but. But I've never played like Roll Twenty or anything like that. Um, So all our gaming is face to face, and as I alluded to in the last episode, lately in the last five years, it's almost all been in public at game stores. And I do think that atmosphere makes you a little bit more self-conscious about what's going on around you and stuff. I've gotten better about kind of letting go and just because everyone there is, you know, most of them are. Gamers, they maybe not all role-playing gamers, but they at least are familiar with the concept and aren't freaked out by you know people um, acting out and getting excited and stuff. But uh, but it's still I still feel a little bit self-conscious and try and tamp down a little bit of the the weirdness and the profanity and. Um, and other things because that's the the games we play of, you know, it's a, a wide variety of the population and, you know, if you are playing a game where, um, you, had, you know, I don't know, if you were someone of a different race and uh, you walk by a table and saw a bunch of white guys and one of them is trying to... I don't know. I don't know. You know what I mean. It's, it's just, I don't want to cause waves. And I guess part of it is it seems like people just get so offended so easily now. And and also it seems like there's an alarming trend that seems to be growing where people want to apply today's moralities and attitudes to the past. And it's, I don't know, I think it's a a little bit short-sighted to not be able to see that those were different times. You can't apply the morality of 2018, 2019 to Roman Republic or Athenian Greece or um, ancient Egypt or Dark Ages Europe. It, it's just, it, it's as ridiculous as applying the morality from those times to current times. But people seem to want to judge the past by contemporary values, and boy, I, I think those people might be, if they could somehow, after they've died and a hundred years have passed and maybe things that they're doing now are viewed as abhorrent or evil or ridiculous or whatever, a hundred years from now, um, they'd maybe have a, a different tune to play. I mean, I could easily see in the near future people who ate meat as being regarded as evil or people who kept... Dogs and cats as pets as evil, or any number of things. Uh, maybe in the future, people who are were uh, religious are going to be viewed as complete crackpots, and or maybe vice versa. I don't know. It's or people that who are fat or smoked or anything like that were just you know uh, boils on the ass of civilization because they caused all these health problems and health insurance to skyrocket. I mean, it's, it just goes on and on and on. So to cast aspersions on the past by applying today's morality, I think, is just myopic. Um, <laughs> what else did you have to say? I don't remember. I, let me step down from my soapbox and go to the main topic. So today I'm going to start out talking a little bit about the choices of races that you can play in fantasy games and maybe more specifically in the fantasy adventure game that I'm working on and designing and it seems best maybe to start out too with uh, what you know you are them you know them you love them you hate them they're humans. Every fantasy game I'm a aware of has that as kind of the base option that you can choose and while some games have uh different cultures that they describe, I remember Greyhawk had what, the Backlanish and Iridians and Sulois and Flan, and they'd go into a little bit of detail about the cultures and stuff and the nationalities and things political situations. I'm sure there are those things in Forgotten Realms as well, but I'm not very well-versed in the realms. It all seemed a little bit more of a melting pot there with everyone speaking common, I think. Well, I suppose they did in uh, in Greyhawk too, but they had some different uh, uh, cultural languages as well there. Um where else in the birthright campaign they did a little bit better job of distinguishing the cultures when they had the Anurians and were kind of like uh, a pseudo-English-French kind of mashup. And the Brecht were like the Hanseatic League, Germanic or Dutch. Uh, the Vos were kind of barbaric Russian type of civilization. Uh, The Rejuric were a little bit of a, maybe a Norse-Celtic mashup, and the Kanasi were kind of an Arabic-Turkish kind of uh, civilization, I think maybe leaning a little bit more Arabic. Um, Dark Sun, I think, was pretty much just more generic, human. Uh, The Lord of the Rings has quite a few different... Uh, human cultures, and in games like Merp and Rollmaster, they differentiated a little bit between those cultures in spe- specifically with like the high men, the ancestors of the Numenorians, had some advantages over the common men. Um, but in general, the games themselves. Um, Humans don't really get anything. They maybe don't get any penalties, but they don't really have any advantages. The only advantage in old D&D was that they could be any class, and they could rise to any level. And there were a few classes that were pretty much exclusive to humans. Uh, I know paladins and monks, that's the only race that could be humans, uh, uh, that... (laughs) <laughs> humans were the only race that could be those classes and some of the other classes only like half-elves I think could be rangers and well, anyway the only real edge you had as a human is that you could you could choose to be anything and in a game like BX where it's race as class the humans are the only thing that can be a cleric or a magic user or a thief. Uh, the dwarves and halflings are kind of fighters with some special abilities and elves are kind of like fighter magic users, but that's the exception more than the rule. And people seem to really, in fantasy adventure games at least, a lot of players kind of turn their nose up to the human. They view them as a complete vanilla option and not interesting at all and maybe it's familiarity breeds contempt or something but um, I think it probably has more to do with the demi-humans having more goodies and if not that then people just want to play something really different and playing a, a different race opens up maybe more possibilities but are they overlooking things like making up new cultures or whatever? Colin and his call-in talked about having an outsider kind of PC, and you can you could make up your own culture for whatever tribe of humans or cultural group you belong to. And I mean that allows all kinds of creative outlet, um, perhaps as almost as much as as. Choosing a different species, race, um, but what can we do aside from uh just giving exclusivity to classes to humans? Is there anything else that would separate humans from the different standard fantasy? Races, species, I guess is the better way to to term them. Elves, dwarves, halflings. Well, I think in one regard, people overlook maybe what being able to live for a thousand years would do to someone. Um, In AD&D, which is my main memory reference point, I think elves typically had a lifespan of up to 1,200 years, maybe even up to 2,000 for, like, gray elves. And dwarves could live to be 400 or 450 years old, and gnomes could be 600. And even halflings could live to be 150 or something. And does that... Does that speak to anything as far as the developmental capabilities, how quickly you would learn? I mean, what... How long would it take an elf to go from being a, an infant to an adolescent? It, do they grow at a slower rate than humans? Do they learn at a slower rate than humans? It seems to be kind of a common trope that um, a lot of the games adopt that humans are more adaptable and can learn more quickly, and that was kind of one of the excuses I think Gygax had for letting humans go to any level, not being limited in levels. He wanted a humanocentric centric setting, and I guess that was the one bony through them, but if you're like me, and none of your games ever really go beyond fifth level, that's a pretty pointless kind of bonus to give but what if you did have something like what i'm doing in my new game a skill-based system and how could you tie that to downtime and race i've been noodling with maybe having humans able to advance more quickly in uh in different skills um Saying that there's a, a time requirement, a game time requirement to have in conjunction with experience points that you spend to acquire a new skill or to advance in a skill. So maybe you could only roll to increase an attribute or your hit points or your, your skill level every week. But what if humans learn more quickly than their longer livid or lived uh, adventuring companions, the dwarves and elves and stuff. Maybe, maybe dwarves and elves could only make an attempt to advance in something every month in game time. And would that have impact in the game? I guess the DM would really have to emphasize game time and, and track that in order to give that kind of advantage to to human characters. Um, There's also been a lot of talk lately in the OSR Anchorites about just experience awards in general. And some games will throw a bone to to humans. I think basic fantasy roleplay, humans automatically just get plus 10% on earned experience as a kind of balancing act with the powers that Demi-Humans get. To me, I think that's pretty pathetic when you compare it to the better saving throws that the Demi-Humans get, and the Dark Vision and other different powers, you know, elves being immune to the touch of a ghoul or whatever, and underground abilities, and halflings being able to to hide and better, Accuracy with missile weapons and things like that. But um, what can you do to even things up for humans? Castles and Crusades, I think, is the best game system as far as coming up with a solution with the whole uh, siege engine mechanic where you, for saving throws and really doing just about anything in the game that isn't combat, you're rolling against an attribute and you choose your attributes to either be primes or secondary. And if you are have a primary focus in an attribute, you only need to roll a 12 or above to succeed, whereas if it's a secondary attribute, you need to roll an 18 or above. And how they balance things is Demi-humans only get two primes, whereas humans get three. So three of your attributes, half your attributes, are primes. And in the Castles and Crusades games I've run, um, there are actually, I think, just as many or more human characters than non-human, and that's, believe me, an anomaly. I've talked about what it was like in 5e and and in other editions of D&D, it's the same way. So I'm trying to come up with ways to make being a human appealing in my game. And the only thing I've really come up with so far is having humans uh, be able to advance in things more quickly because they, can, they learn more quickly. And the other thing is, I think I'll probably let humans at least arrange their attributes to taste in some way. So with the non-human classes, they'll roll their attributes. And again, my my game system will use strength, agility, perception, talent, magic resistance, and lore. And demi-humans will all have uh, different methods to roll each of those attributes depending out upon their their race. And humans will all roll 2d6 plus 3 for all of them. But I think I'll let the human characters either are completely arrange to taste or to swap one for another so that they can be more targeted in building a character than the, than the non-human uh, player characters. So that's, I guess, all I have to say for now about the vanilla humans. Oh, one last thing. The whole idea of humans as monsters. I think, was it Rich Frazier, I think, from Cockatrice Nuggets when he was listing his top three monsters for um, the Logan Howard Challenge? I think he included humans as one of the, his favorite monsters which I thought was a really good choice. And it's true, it seems like in, in most adventure gaming, humans are very common to have as adversaries. They make up the bulk of the brigands and bandits and stuff. They're often the evil high priest or, or crazy wizard is a human. Um, the evil necromancer. You'll occasionally see elves or dwarves Pretty rarely see halflings as adversaries and foes in games. But why? I mean, can't there be elves as adversaries? I thought they did a good job of making them so in the Ceruleus setting for Birthright. Can't there be dwarves and halflings that are adversaries? Keith threw a a band of halfling bandits at us and... Whispered tales of gore. But I think a lot of it is because people hew so closely to the Tolkien idea of these races, and that was propagated in, in D&D, too, that these are all the goodly species, races. The demihumans are all... You know, elves are chaotic good, and dwarves and halflings are lawful good, and gnomes are neutral good. So player characters are usually allied with all these races and not opposed to them. But humans themselves can be anything, so they're a fair game, I guess, to be the monsters as well as the allies. So with that, I'll end this long-winded podcast. If you have anything to add for humans, I'd be really interested in seeing what ideas you might have to make them more palatable as PCs, more entertaining because it seems like players are fine playing them when you're playing a horror game or a western or an alt history game they don't really squawk about having to play humans but in fantasy or sci-fi they all want to be non-humans and i'm interested too hearing about what you think of my idea of letting humans maybe learn at a faster rate does that make sense is it is it something that wouldn't really be um, that feasible at the table? that would be clunky or wouldn't work so well? So give me a call using the Anchor app. Email me at down on the heap podcast at gmail.com if you're shy. And until I talk to you again, don't go down any heap. Oops, I forgot a couple things. So the most obvious way to make humans more appealing is to make non-humans less appealing. So I could certainly go the route of just taking away a lot of the typical goodies that you give to non-human PCs. And if players wanted to play... An elf or a dwarf or a halfling, it would be mainly about just the fluff of the culture that those races have rather than any mechanical in game perks. Uh, Another thing which I've tried and doesn't work so well is having kind of cultural differences that where humans are more accepted in society than than non-humans, and maybe even some non-humans are regarded as um, persona non grata. Maybe some culture despises halflings or dwarves or elves, and they're not welcome, or at least treated as second class. But in practice at the table, it gets kind of tiresome playing that those attitudes, and I think the players get weary of it. And it's just hard to maintain. Um, I do try and play up the fact that those non-human races often stick out like a sore thumb. So if you're an elf, you might be the only elf in town. So it's pretty easy to track your whereabouts or you have some kind of notoriety for being the only elf in town. And maybe the adventurers really don't want notoriety. So that's one other aspect you can do and when i've used luck mechanics in games i've often given humans more luck than especially the long uh lived non-human classes or races because maybe they've used up all their luck so humans might start out with with more luck points than an elf maybe elf starts out with zero or they might have a higher ceiling Because maybe, who knows, maybe the the human gods pay more attention to the affairs of mortals than the elven gods. If they even have gods being virtually immortal themselves. Uh, I think I'm finally done now. See ya. Don't go down in the heat.